We're going to be going to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 19 through 25 today on this new moon. I'm going to title this lesson, Sinning Elders Need to Be Rebuked. There's going to be a lot more we cover in this lesson, but that's the title of it. I'll get to that here in just a second. We've seen in studying through this book, and it's such an excellent way to study the Bible, is book by book, chapter by chapter, and verse by verse. There's preachers that go their entire life without preaching on certain topics because they don't teach through books of the Bible. They only teach the certain subjects that they want to talk about. And they leave everything else on the wayside. But when you read all the way through a book, see, it forces you as a minister to study and to preach on topics you might not normally talk about. It's the way that the books were written, and it's the best way that they are to be studied, I think. And so we cover a little bit of a different topic. It's kind of a subtopic from yesterday. But we've seen in studying 1 Timothy, specifically chapters 3 and yesterday's message in chapter 5, that a good elder who rules well and studies to teach the Bible should be respected. And that respect means that he should be held in esteem, even to the point of paying the man a salary for his labor in the Word. Today, what we want to do is turn to a time when an elder is to be rebuked. And what can happen at times is that an elder may become untouchable. In other words, you think that you cannot go to the elder even when he is out of line with the Scriptures. There can come a time when that happens in the assembly. If it gets to this point with an elder, then he's probably at a point where he needs to be removed from the office of the eldership. He's gotten involved in pride, and of course we know in the qualifications for the eldership, you cannot be a prideful man. One of the qualifications, if you remember, says that the overseer, King James Bishop, is not supposed to be a novice. Some people think that means a young man, but it doesn't mean a young man. It means a new convert. It means somebody that's new to the faith. He's a believer, but he's only a recent believer. He's not to be an elder because it says he could get lifted up in pride and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And that's not just saying that new converts can get lifted up in pride. Old ones can too. Old ones can too. I'll get that right. (laughs) It's hard up here sometimes, guys. Everybody's listening, though. That's good. But pride is a very, very bad, bad sin. It may be the worst of sins. One of the verses in Proverbs calls it, in the Good News translation, the worst of all sins. And I think it's probably because it leads to so many other sins when we're prideful. We all struggle with it to varying degrees. It's something that we all need to work on to a certain extent. But when this happens with an elder, he's gotten too prideful if you can't go to him and say, look, you know, you're you're off base here or you're in some unrepentant sin. If he thinks you're not supposed to do that, the man's really not a true man of Yahweh. Bad, sinful elders portray themselves as the man of God sometimes. And they domineer over people in the assembly. People think that they need to respect the elder and follow him in whatever he says. And that gets ridiculous sometimes because the elder starts ruling over people with his man-made rules instead of studying the Scriptures and then teaching the Scriptures and not forcing people to obey. An old man once told me, he said, Matthew, he said, you cannot make anybody live right 
you don't have that power. He said, I've learned that. And if you're going to be in the ministry, you need to know that. Because there's going to be times when you preach with all your heart. And maybe many, many times on one subject. But sometimes it's just not going to seem like anybody's hearing, anybody's listening. But you've got to remember that you're just the messenger. All you do is plant. And somebody else may come along and water. But we know that the Heavenly Father is the one that gives the increase. Yeshua says in Matthew 15, after he deals with them about the ritual washing of the hands, he says, every plant which my Heavenly Father hath not planted shall be plucked up. A lot of people look like a plant, look like a flower. But he says there's some that only appear to be. He said if they're not planted by the Father, they'll be rooted out of the ground. The wheat and the tear grow together, brothers and sisters. And you know the only way that you can tell a tear apart from a wheat is to break them open. See what's on the inside. Because on the outside they can appear to both be the exact same thing. Sometimes elders make you think that they're something when they're really not. I've said this before. I'll repeat it because I think it's good. It applies to me for this sermon, but it applies to all of us. You don't know me by watching me when I preach. That's not how you know me. You don't know me by watching me how I act at at the assembly. How you really know me is when you watch how I live outside the doors of the assembly. How I live my life. That's when you know the real Matthew Jansen. You know, anybody can put on a show here at the church, but the true test comes is how we interact with people. Do we love? Do we treat people kindly? Are we servants of Yahweh when we go out into the world? Or do we try to be a spiritual chameleon and blend in with all the sinners because we're embarrassed about how we believe or what we stand for? The Son of Man says, if you're embarrassed of me before men, I'll be embarrassed of you before my Father. That would be a very fearful thing, wouldn't it? To have Yeshua Himself be embarrassed of of Matthew before the Father. He can't talk about me with His Father. Because I'm an embarrassment to him. He said, that's how it's going to be if you're embarrassed of me. So we can't be embarrassed of the Messiah. What we're going to learn today is that elders should be respected, but they can and need to be rebuked at times. We do not need to show partiality to an elder when he is involved in unrepentant sin. Let's go to verse 19. 1 Timothy 5 verse 19. It says, Don't accept an accusation against an elder unless it is supported by two or three witnesses. Here the word elder doesn't necessarily refer to the older man like back in verse 1, but it refers to the ruling elders that we touched on last night in verses 17 and 18. And it says that you're not supposed to accept an accusation against an elder unless it can be supported by two or three witnesses. Accusations need not be entertained, brothers and sisters. Many times an accusation is nothing more than small talk, Gossip and even slander. Many times men who truly do serve Yahweh get accused of all sorts of things. Someone who comes up to you and accuses, let's say, me or somebody else that's in the eldership of something sinful should not even be listened to. It should not even be received unless they come with another party and both people testify to the sin that, let's say, that I'm not repentant of. The only way that you should even entertain it and even begin to listen to it is if you have at least two witnesses, not one. 
Why does Paul instruct Timothy in this? Paul, he knows the Torah. He bases everything on the Torah. We've seen that many times here in 1 Timothy. This concept that is written down here by Paul is attached to the Torah commandment found in Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, which says, The one condemned to die is to be executed on the testimony of two or three witnesses. No one is to be executed on the testimony of a single witness. Why is that? Well, that shows wisdom. The wisdom is that one witness could make something up very easily. But it would be more difficult to get two or three witnesses to falsely accuse a person. It's more difficult to get two than it is to get one. Now, let me say this, and this is something that a lot of people don't go into, even when they talk about the two or the three witnesses. Even if you have two or three witnesses, you still have to be careful. Because you can have two false witnesses. You can have 50 false witnesses. One of the commandments in Exodus says, you shall not follow a multitude to do evil. That shows us sometimes there's multitudes of false witnesses. Multitudes of them, many of them. There was a, a man in the Bible by the, na- by the name of Naboth. Naboth had a beautiful vineyard. Ahab, who was king at that time, he was king and he was coveting Naboth's vineyard. And he asked him, listen, I'll buy it from you. And Naboth said, it's not for sale. It's, a, it's been in the family and I don't want to sell it. And so Ahab went back and complained to the queen, Jezebel. And Jezebel hired more than one witness to falsely accuse Naboth. And the accusation was that Naboth had cursed Yahweh and the king. Okay, that was a violation of the third commandment, actually. Naboth never did curse Yahweh, and he never did curse the king. But the men that Jezebel hired, even though there was more than one witness, accused him of that. You know what happened to him? They killed him. Naboth was put to death, falsely. Now, I believe he'll be in the kingdom. But he was put to death at that time, even though there was more than one witness. So just because there's more than one witness, you still have to be careful. Don't even receive it if there's only one. Receive it if there's more than one, but still be careful. Make sure you get all your ducks in a row. Make sure you get all the information before you go to the elder about some kind of unrepentant sin or anybody. You know, this text mentions the elder, but you shouldn't receive an accusation out of the mouth of one witness about anybody. You shouldn't entertain that. I don't listen to that. Most of the time, usually, people that bring the accusations don't serve Yahweh to begin with. And so you shouldn't even receive accusation coming from somebody that's heart's not in the right place. See. 1 Timothy 5, 20-21. On the other hand, it says, publicly rebuke those who sin. Still talking about the elders. So that the rest will also be afraid. I solemnly charge you before Yahweh and the Messiah Yeshua and the elect angels to observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing out of favoritism. Publicly rebuke. In context, this is still in reference to the ruling elders. An elder needs to be rebuked when he's in unrepentant sin and that done so publicly. Publicly. Why? Well, the public part is so that the people will see that the assembly of Yahweh is not going to put up with having people just do anything that they want to do. You notice in the Old Covenant times, and I still believe in capital punishment today. I get ridiculed by some people for believing that. 
I still believe it today, but when the theonomy or the theocracy was set up there in Old Covenant Israel, when they would carry out the death penalty on somebody that was guilty, do you know that everybody would watch? So that all Israel would listen, they would hear, and they would fear. And I'm for capital punishment today. I'm for Yahweh's commandments and statutes. But what good is a commandment if you don't have a judgment? You know, if you have a speed limit, but yet you speed and the cop pulls you over and says, listen, I don't want you to speed, but there's no judgment, there's no fine. That's not a very good law. The commandment's no good without the judgment. So I believe in, in the judgments of Yahweh that Psalm 19 says is true and they're true and they're righteous altogether. That includes the death penalty. Somebody can be legitimately proven to be guilty of not just a sin, but a crime against Yahweh, which many of the commandments, when you violate them, they're crimes. They need to be put to death. Not put in prison. The prisons are overloaded. Yahweh only has prisons to keep people in ward until you find out what is supposed to be done to them. Whether they need to make restitution with material or monetary things, or whether they need to make restitution with their life. Give their life up because they violated Yahweh's law in the area of, let's say, dishonoring the parents. When you talk about capital punishment, one of the first things that people will try to bring as a rebuttal is this. Well, if you believe in capital punishment, and you believe that you're supposed to stone disobedient children. I had a man tell me that on a radio broadcast not long ago that I called in and talked to him, and I did it in a nice way. I've got it on recording if anybody wants to listen. They said, you, you believe then in dis- stoning disobedient children. And I said, I do believe in that commandment. You know, Deuteronomy says, of course, he had everybody else that really didn't study, that was listening to the broadcast, thinking that I was wanting to throw rocks at Elijah if he disobeyed me. And I don't believe that. The book of Proverbs says you train them up and you spank them with a rod of correction. What the law is referring to in Deuteronomy is a son that's old enough to be a drunkard and a glutton. In other words, he can't, he's a sluggard. He can't hold down a job. He's strung out on alcohol. He can't live life. He curses his parents. He beats his daddy up. And you've done tried and tried all his life to correct him. But you bring him to the elders of the city. You don't just do it yourself. You bring him to the elders. You say, this my son is a disobedient and rebellious son. He's a glutton and he's a drunkard. And I can't do anything with him. So obviously it's a well-along child, probably 18 or 19 years old. And Yahweh says you're to put him to death. I didn't say that. You know, when I was talking to the guy on the radio broadcast, he acted like I made up that law. I didn't make that law up. I read it out of Deuteronomy. So if we're going to make fun of the law, we're going to have to make fun of Yahweh, not Matthew Jansen. It's neat to see that the only time that Yeshua talked about capital punishment was when he talked about the fifth commandment in Matthew 15. He said, Yahweh says, Honor your father and your mother, and he that curseth father and mother, let him die the death. That's the only time Yeshua talked about capital punishment, and he talked about it for a disobedient, rebellious teenager. Think about that. You know, that blows me away. So Yahweh's judgments are true, and they're righteous altogether. He said, publicly rebuke them. In other words, I was saying, when you carry out the death penalty, it's to be in public. When you rebuke the elder, it's to be in public. When he's unrepentant. In other words, don't show favoritism to him. And that's what verse 21 says. He says, I solemnly charge you before, listen, and Paul brings in his three witnesses. He says, I charge you before Yahweh and the Messiah Yeshua. And then he mentions a group, the elect angels. 
I think Paul's making a play there. He's just talked about the two or more witnesses, and then Paul brings in his three witnesses. The Father, the Son, and the elect angels. So I'm charging you before these witnesses that you do these things without partiality and without showing favoritism. A lot of times, we tend to show favoritism to people because they're just a preacher or a pastor. All they are is a servant to the assembly. And if they sin and they're unrepentant, it's no different than if somebody in the congregation sins. And what Paul is telling Timothy is don't show favoritism. Don't. It's kind of like what James talks about, Brother Mike, when he says you have these two men that come into the church. One man is dressed in nice apparel and he has a nice ring on his finger, a gold ring. Another man comes in and he's got tattered clothes. He doesn't have a lot of money. You tell the man that's got got the money, you come and you have the uppermost seat. And you don't even pay attention to the man that doesn't have a lot. He says, when you do this and you're a respecter of persons in this way, then you're a judge of the law, not a keeper of the law. That's what James says. You're supposed to treat them equally, right? Not just treat a wealthy man because you think, well, this guy right here, he's going to be able to help me out on my paycheck. You know, we talked about it last night. He ain't going to want to muzzle the mouth of the ox. This fellow right here, the one that don't have clothes to wear, he's not going to have a lot, whole lot to give me. So I'm not really going to take up time with him. No, that's wrong. That's showing respect of persons in that way. You always know respect of persons in judgment, and neither should we be. You don't let a rich man go off scot-free if he's committed a crime. If you do, you're a bad judge. We've got a lot of them in this nation today. They don't judge justly. They judge depending upon the wealthiness of individuals and how much they like them as people. When they should hear the case and judge justly, no matter if the man's a pauper or a king. But we see people like the President of the United States, we've seen throughout time, the presidents, they've been found guilty of of sins. And it's like people say, well, it's no big deal. Or preachers, well, it's not a big deal, you know, he's a man of God. No, it is a big deal. It is a big deal. And then the preacher wants to quote a verse out of context and say something like, touch not Yahweh's anointed and do his prophets no harm. Well, listen, a man that is a preacher that has unrepentant sin in his life is not a prophet. And he's not anointed by Yahweh. I believe you shouldn't touch Yahweh's anointed men. I believe you shouldn't do his prophets any harm. But that's not talking about preachers that are in unrepentant sin, Brother Randy. (laughs) Paul says rebuke them and don't do it in private. He says you do it in public. You do it in front of the other men in the assembly so that everybody can see. We're not showing favoritism here. We're not going to do things in respect of persons like that. That's what Paul's saying. Verse 22. In this same vein, he says, Don't be too quick to lay hands on anyone and don't share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Paul then goes on into laying hands on other people. And he's not talking about just being careful about you know who you touch. Like going, don't, don't be too quick to lay hands on Brother Dan right there. That's not what he's talking about. He's referring to the ordaining, the commissioning of the eldership and the ministry. He said, don't be quick to lay hands. In the Old Testament and in the New, when you would commission somebody to preach or do something in the office of the spiritual, you would pray over them and you would lay hands on them. Like I said before, that's not just a, that's not a Pentecostal thing. A lot of times we're scared of that. We think, well, that's how the Pentecostals do it. No, that's biblical. To lay hands upon them. If it's in the Bible, we shouldn't be scared of it. So we pray and we lay hands. We anoint with oil. 
We believe in those Scriptures too, just like the rest of them. And we commission men into the ministry. But he tells Timothy, don't be so quick about it. Why? Because you've got to make sure that the man's lifestyle is right. Don't commission a man. Don't lay hands on him. And it says, and be a partaker in their sins. See, what you're doing is, if you lay hands on somebody and commission them for the ministry, you're okaying them as part of the ministry, as part of the eldership. And when they go off and you've already given your approval on that person through the laying on of hands, you partake in what they do. That's what Paul's telling Timothy. This is one of the verses, and I know I'm not wanting to start a big debate here today, and I can understand both sides when I say what I'm about to say. I understand both sides. This is one of the verses that scares me about voting. It scares me. I don't want to put an approval on a man that goes and does things not according to Yahweh's law. I'm worried that I might be partaking in his sins. We've got to be careful about who we lay hands on. That is who we appoint, who we commission, who we ordain to be in a leadership position. Next, in verse 23, Paul says, Don't continue drinking only water, but use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. He's not saying to Timothy, don't drink water. He's saying don't use only water, but also a little wine. That's the understanding there. And there have been many comments made concerning why Paul would have instructed Timothy in the area of wine at this point in the epistle. Here's a couple of possibilities. It could be because he knows Timothy's work in the church is going to be stressful on his stomach and cause illness to come upon him because of so much pressure and responsibility. And if you don't think that can happen, believe you me, it can. There's times when I worry myself sick about things that have gone on in the assembly and wanting to just have peace and, and prosper as a body. And you know, the stomach gets ill and Paul's telling Timothy, he says, listen, when that happens, he says, don't just drink water. Get you a little bit of wine for your stomach's sake, for your frequent illnesses. It's possible, some commentators think, that it's possible that Timothy might have taken Paul's admonition back in chapter 3 concerning not being addicted to wine a little bit too far. Remember where he said that the elder and the deacon should not be addicted to wine? That means he shouldn't be given over to it. Literally, what it really means there in the Greek is he just stays at the wine table. You can't get him away from it. (laughs) That's what it means. But Timothy might have taken it too far and said, well, I'm not going to have any at all. And so it may be, some commentators say, that it might be that Paul's going back and saying, look, Timothy, what I was talking about was addiction. You can use a little wine. He's telling wine in moderation. Drink it for your frequent illnesses and for the sake of your stomach. Whatever the case may be, we see here that Paul endorses a moderate use of wine even for a minister as young Timothy. Paul recognizes that wine is beneficial in dealing with stomach problems and other illnesses. Wine is healthy. And don't let anybody anybody tell you that it's not. Paul said that it is. It's healthy when you drink it in moderation. Many professing Christians tend to get their theology about wine by looking at how much it is abused by people. They look at men that are drunkards or drunks that might abuse their wives, both in words or even physically. And I'm against all that. Or they look at drunk drivers, which I'm against too. People that get drunk and then they go out and they get on the road and they kill mothers and children. That's devastating. That's wrong. But we shouldn't get our theology about wine by looking at people that abuse wine. You know, the same thing is done by the gun control people. 
they try to point you to all the deaths and all the bad that happens with the guns, and they think that getting rid of all the guns is going to take care of the problem. But it's not the guns that's the problem. It's the hands that those guns fall in that's the problem. You know, I know a lot of Yahweh people that believe in the right to bear arms. They've never had a gun, an accident with a gun like that. It's our duty to bear arms, brother. Yahweh given duty and right and responsibility. Absolutely. The Bible says that if a thief breaks into the house, he said he first has to bind the strong man of the house. What does that mean? It means that the strong man of the house is fighting the thief that broke into his house. He's defending his property, his wife, and his children. See, you can protect. The Bible has a doctrine of self-defense. It does. There is a biblical doctrine of self-defense. And there's a biblical doctrine of wine. I've got an excellent book if anybody wants to look it up on Amazon. It's by Kenneth Gentry. It's called God Gave Wine. He takes the position that the Bible teaches that wine is only wrong in drunkenness. Um, and I think that some of the people that I've met in the, in the church world, and I say this in, in love, some of the people that are so dead set against wine are the ones that need to take a drink and just calm down a little bit. <laughs> oh, hallelujah. You know, wine is a beautiful gift. The Bible says Yahweh gives it to gladden the heart of man. Just like He gives grass to the cattle and bread to strengthen a man's heart and oil to make his face to shine. He said wine to gladden his heart. The Bible says that's in the book of Psalms. In Ecclesiastes 10.19 it says, A feast is made for laughter, and wine maketh merry. But money answereth all things. Those are verses you don't hear quoted much from the pulpit, but they're in the Bible. Right along with 1 Timothy 5, verse 23. Wine's a beautiful gift that Yahweh gives man right along with other gifts such as food and sex. All these are great gifts from Yahweh, but they can all be abused. They can all be abused. You can commit sexual immorality. You can commit gluttony. You can commit drunkenness. But you can properly use sex, food, wine, and the other gifts that Yahweh's blessed us with. You can properly use those. So Paul tells Timothy, he says, listen, guy, you don't need to drink water when your stomach is upset. Drink wine. It'll help you. It'll help settle your stomach. It helps with the digestive system. Verses 24 through 25. Some people's sins are evident, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others follow them. Likewise, good works are obvious, and those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden. Paul now goes back to the elders that sin and to speak about people who sin in general. And he points out that some people's sins are very, very obvious. You can tell that they're a ranked sinner. We can look at the life of wicked people on the earth, and it's obvious that if they do not repent, they aren't going to be in the kingdom. Some people you can just tell. You can just watch their lifestyle, and you know, man, you know, I pray for them, but if they keep going on that, that track, they're not going to make it. Some people's sins are obvious. However... Paul says there are people in life who may have you fooled. This is on the veins of laying on of hands too quickly. You may think that a certain person is a pretty good person, but they may be involved in what could be called a hidden sin. Now, it's not that they're hiding from the face of Yahweh. Nothing is hidden from the face and the eyes of God. But they're just hiding their sin from men. These sinners will be found out, brothers and sisters. They will be. Even if they carry on to the judgment, they'll be found out at the judgment. Some men's sins are obvious, but others, they're hidden. doesn't mean that they're not sinners. It's just that they're not as obvious. 
While the obvious sinner's sin goes before them, the other sinner will have their sins follow them. That is, the judgment will reveal their unrepentant heart. And if you are either of these people today, an obvious sinner, or one that practices in these hidden sins, and you think you've got Yahweh fooled and you do not, if you're either of those people, you need to give your sin over to Yeshua the Messiah. His work was done for that very purpose. He can cleanse you. He can make you brand new. He can wipe away all uncleanness in you. And in turn, make you into a completely new person. A completely new person. When he says old things are passed away and all things are made new and if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, that's not poetry. That's Bible. And it's true. And I've seen it. I've seen people that are not even the same individual after their born-again experience than before. They're not. And when you talk to them, they tell you, they say, Brother Matthew, you only know me post-born-again, not pre-born-again. If you know me pre-born-again, you wouldn't believe that I am what I am now. But they are what they are by the grace of Yahweh. There's not a day that goes by that you don't need to thank Yahweh for the gift of Yeshua the Messiah. See, it's because of what the Son of Yahweh did that we can be forgiven. There's something in theology called a double exchange. A double exchange. And what that means is is that Yeshua lives a sinless life and we live a sinful life. But Yahweh accepts Yeshua as a substitute for us. It's taught all through the Tanakh where they would lay hands on an animal that would be a substitute for them only for a period of time though until the Messiah would come. That animal would act as a substitute on the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, for the people of Israel. Those that would draw near and pray to Yahweh and ask for their sins to be forgiven. Well, Yeshua lives that sinless life. We live that sinful life. But Yahweh accepts Yeshua as a substitute. And what that means is this, is that our sins are taken by Yeshua the Messiah. But that's just one exchange. There's a double exchange though. We get His righteousness accredited to our account. A lot of times we don't think about that. See, if somebody's sins was just wiped away, that means that they don't have any more sins, but where's the positive righteousness? 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says that He, Yahweh, made Him who knew no sin, that is Yeshua, to be sin for us. That's one exchange. But then it goes on to say that we might be made the righteousness of Yahweh, how? In Him. This is why there's no justification by the law. It's for this one simple point. All have sinned. And Apostle Paul didn't make that up. That was taught by Solomon. In Ecclesiastes 7.20, he said, There is not a just man on earth that doeth good and sinneth not. David said in the Psalms, Yahweh, if you marked iniquities, who could stand? In your sight, no man living will be justified. What these old covenant saints realized and recognized was the same thing that we should recognize today. That apart from the grace of Yahweh, we can't have salvation. And if righteousness comes by the law, that is that perfect righteousness whereby we can stand before the Father, then the Messiah died needlessly. He wouldn't have needed to die. You say, Brother Matthew, there's people in the Bible that are called righteous. That's true. That's true. Zechariah and Elizabeth, Luke chapter 1, they were both righteous, walking in the commandments. No doubt about it. That did not mean, though, that they never committed a sin. So thus, when they stood before the judgment seat of Yahweh, and Yahweh said, did you keep my law? They may could say, well, we've been walking in your law, but we have broken it before. 
And therefore, Yahweh has to punish him because he's just. Brother TJ, he's just. But he says, because of what my son did, he lived perfectly for you. He'll give you his righteousness. And he'll take your sin. That's the only thing that's going to get you into the kingdom. Now, brothers and sisters, I believe in obeying the law and I believe a person that is truly converted will walk in the Torah of Yahweh and they'll grow until they die in the Torah of Yahweh. But keeping the Torah is not what gets you into the kingdom. It's a result of what Yahweh has done in your life. When Yeshua says, those that do the will of my Father are the ones that inherit the kingdom, what He means is this. This is how you know the ones that have had the grace of Yahweh upon their life. Because they bear forth fruit of righteousness. Fruit is not produced from itself. It grows on a tree. It comes after the fact, see. And Yeshua calls good works of the Torah as fruit. The reason the fruit is there is because Yahweh saved you first, see. And when He saved you, you didn't have any works of righteousness to bring to Him. You were filthy and wretched and evil. And so was I. But because of that double exchange, some sins are obvious, some are hidden. But it doesn't matter which one you're in the category of today, you give your sin over to Yeshua and He'll give you His righteousness. He'll give you His righteousness. And you wear that robe of righteousness. And you stand before the Father. He looks at you. There's only one question that He asks. Are you in Messiah? Or are you out of Messiah? And you say, I'm in Him. He says, then you qualify. Because He kept every part of my law. He never transgressed. (laughs) Hallelujah. Verse 25 teaches us that what goes for sin also goes for good works. Let's read 25 again. Likewise, good works are obvious. And those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden. You'll have some Christians, professing Christians, tell you that your good works should be or should not be seen. But that's not what Yeshua teaches in Matthew 5.16. Yeshua says, Let your light so shine among men so that other people may see your good works. Now, you don't want to have the prideful motive, though, like the Pharisees. The Pharisees wanted to be seen so that people could look at them and lift them up. When your good works are being seen, and believe me, all you've got to do is be a Torah keeper, and people are going to see your works. But what what you've got to understand is this. You're doing it so that you glorify Yahweh. Not not yourself. And if if it ever gets to yourself where you're looking at yourself, you're boasting yourself, it's wrong. You repent. You get back on track. You fight that pride. You say, I'm doing it for Yahweh. Yahweh is is in control. He's the only reason that you're even able to do the good works in the first place. (laughs) So you give Him the glory. Yeshua, Yeshua teaches that we have to be like that city that is set on a hill that cannot be hidden. I drove through Albuquerque, New Mexico one time and it was lit up, man. You couldn't hide it unless the power went out, I guess. But the point is is that when you have something that's lit up and that's set up on a hill, you can't hide it. He says, neither do men light a candle and then put it in a back place in the room. They put it in the place of the room where everybody can see off of that candle, off of that light. So we have these fans right here. They're located in a certain place and the lights so that we all can, can see. We don't buy lights for the church and then set them out on the porch and have church in the dark. We put them where we can see them. That's what Yeshua is saying. Let your light so shine among men. Like those lights, like that city. 
You're supposed to be shining. I've said it before. I'll repeat myself. You can't shine for Christ if you do everything that the world does. You're not a light. If you talk like men, if you go to the same places, the sinful places that they go, if you wear the clothes that they wear, talking about immodesty, not not style, immodesty. If you do all the things they do, commit all the sins that they commit, hang out with them and be a chameleon, you're not being a light to people, are you? You're not. What you're showing them is that, hey, I, you know, I know I go to church, but I this is how I act away from church. No, you're to be a light. And you know what? A lot of times, you don't even have to say anything. You have people come up to you. And they'll say, you know, I just noticed something different about you. And I just want to thank you for how you live your life, or how you treat your wife, or how you train your children, how you act with people. I want to thank you for that. And you've never even spoken a word to them. Why? The Messiah is shining forth from your face. It's the glory of Yahweh. Good works cannot be hidden. And those that are will eventually come to light, Paul says. Don't worry. Don't fret. Sometimes we get to a point where we're keeping all these good works and we're wondering why is nothing not working. In His time. In His time. Be patient. Possess your soul in patience. He's always working a beautiful thing out in His time. See, People are watching and you don't even know about them. And they're watching you. And they might watch you for two years till they come and talk to you about the truths of Scripture. But be patient. Be patient. Good works cannot remain hidden, brothers and sisters. It's just like the sins. I know we talked about the sins and we need to talk about the sins. But likewise with the good works. Alright? And we need to be on the side of the good works. Right, McCord? And not on the side of the, of the sins. Amen. Hallelujah. We'll end it right there. Let's stand and close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Most High Creator, we glorify You and we praise You and we thank You for all that You do for us. Thank You, Father, for this time. Thank You for this new moon. Thank You for the seventh month. We glory in Your Son, our Messiah, our righteousness. Amen.